Well, please may I invite you to look with me at Mark chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, it's there on the order of service. So the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 4 of Mark's account has stilled the storm on the sea when the disciples feared that they were all going to die. They woke him. He was sleeping in the, in the back of the boat. Master, don't you care that we're about to perish? And the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked the wind and the storm and all was calm and they were astonished. Who is this man? <clears throat> Since then, um, Jesus has been involved in healings and ministry of various sorts. And then just before the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He's attempting to get the disciples away for somewhere for them to have a bit of rest and recuperation. But many come, and Jesus has compassion on them. And amazingly, despite it's late and they can't go shopping in the local villages to get any food, um, Jesus provides for them all um, five little loaves and two little fish. And there's this amazing miracle where Jesus feeds its 5,000 men plus women and children, so perhaps as many as 10,000. And at the end of it, for his poor, tired disciples, and there are 12 baskets full, one each for them, that they might have something to eat. So that's just happened, and we start our passage at verse 45 immediately. Um, Mark's gospel is very much the immediate gospel, and euthus, uh, the word in the Greek, is there frequently. And so immediately, this amazing miracle has happened. And immediately, Jesus does something. Now, if you were there, and you were a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, very excited, and you're in your first year with him, you've left everything behind to come and be with him, and he's performed this extraordinary miracle. And so you've got all these people who are just wowed. This is amazing. Who is this man? What is his message? Could he possibly be, given that we're dealing with first century Israelites, could he possibly be the greater than Moses, the prophet who was promised the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, Christ? Could this possibly be him? What would you want to do? Okay, I'll make it a rhetorical question. What would you want to do? Surely you'd want to take this opportunity to do studies with all these crowds, to instruct them more about the glorious truths that are centered in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's great promises, all the prophecies of the Old Testament they're all coming together at this moment in time. What a glorious moment to seize and to bring these people to a living faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what you want to do? What does Jesus do? Well, the first thing he does is he made his disciples get into the boat. And uh, that is a fair translation, but we need to understand the force of made. Jesus compelled his disciples, would be an equally fair translation, to get into the boat. And he tells them to go to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismisses the crowd. But why? Why, Lord Jesus, at this moment of tremendous 
impression and demonstration of power are you sending your disciples away? And why dismiss the crowd? This is entirely wrong. This is where we should be doing more ministry, where we should be helping people to understand more clearly what it is that you're doing and your purpose and your mission. Well, John, in his parallel account, helps us understand actually what's going on under the surface. John says at this moment, and I'm in John chapter 6, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is him. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This area where this uh, miracle has just been done and the fact that Mark records there are 5,000 men helps us key into the fact that within Israel there were some areas that were very strong in terms of zealotry. You'll appreciate that at this time Israel was an occupied country. The Romans had been in charge of Israel for over 100 years. So the people were a repressed people. They desperately wanted, forgive me borrowing the phrase, to make Israel great again. And they thought that the way they would do that was by having this Messiah come, this anointed king promised in the Old Testament, and he would lead them in military action against the Romans and throw them out. That's what they thought. And... uh, in AD 70, there was um, a significant rebellion. Um, many individuals from this area were involved in it in an attempt to do just that, um, to throw the Romans out, and that led, in due course, to the destruction of the temple and so on. But at this moment, these 5,000 men, of whom probably a good proportion were part of the party known as the Zealots, they were very... And nationalistic and wanted to see Israel triumph again, they say, this is the moment. This is the man. Let's take him now and make him king. So uh, forgive me, I don't know if I've told this story here before, but um, on one occasion, I, uh, the, the work I'm involved in is involved in taking the gospel to the British military. And the then chief of uh, the general staff, the most senior officer in the British Army, um, was giving a lecture in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office about the British Army and faith. And I was kindly pointed in this direction. I thought I ought to go along because I need to hear what the most senior army officer has to say about the British Army and faith. So I turned up at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and I addressed myself as smartly as I thought I needed to and uh, I, I sat in the waiting area and there were some others who came and we sat waiting to be escorted through to the room where the general was going to give his briefing. And uh, this rather harassed lady came into the room and looked around and saw me and she came over to me and said, excuse me, are you chief of the general staff? And for one moment, I thought, wouldn't it be lovely to say, well, yes, I am. And then she would take me through 
And I thought, I'm a Christian. I could probably say some useful things about faith in the British Army. But then reality landed heavily, and I thought, first of all, I'd better tell the truth. And secondly, I would get myself into immense trouble impersonating the Chief of the General Staff. And so I said, no, I'm terribly sorry. I'm not the man you want. And uh, believe it or not, he's almost as handsome as me. And so when he came in, they did identify the right man, and he gave his lecture. But the point is, I would have been a complete fraud, wouldn't I? I'm not Chief of the General Staff. I never made it within touching distance of Chief of the General Staff. But these men see something about Jesus that makes them go, he's the one. He is the one. They want to take him by force and make him king. For a moment, I thought it would be wonderful to be thought of as chief of the general staff. For Jesus, his nation, his chosen people, recognized enough about him that they wanted to make him king. That is Jesus' destiny, king of kings and lord of lords. And he could have done it, couldn't he? He could have let them take him and make him king. And Jesus could have called battalions of angels from heaven to completely destroy Roman hegemony over Israel. He could have done that. Do you remember on another occasion, right at the beginning of his ministry, the devil came to Jesus while he was 40 days in the wilderness. And Matthew records for us, again the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the nations of the world and their glory. The devil shows Jesus all of that. And he says to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan knows that all the nations and their glory will be Jesus Christ's. But he says, look, I can give them to you. Here's a way you can do it. Bow down and worship me, and they're yours. And however much we struggle with what's going on there between the purposes of God and the purposes of the devil, the fact is that for Jesus it was a real temptation. So here in Mark 6, the people say, Jesus, we want you to be king. We'll make you king and we'll fight for you so you can get the nations. Satan has said to Jesus some months previously, just bow down and worship me and I will give you the nations and all their glory. And remember later on when Jesus says to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem where I will be betrayed and given into the hands of the Gentiles and they will put me to death. And Peter says, Oh no, Lord, that must never happen to you. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Do you see what we're dealing with here are two different routes to glory. Jesus is going to have glory. In fact, Jesus is going to have all the glory. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father 
And in due course, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. The question is, what is the root to it? And for Jesus, it appeared that there were several possible routes. One route was the adulation of the people and a crowned kingship. Another route was to worship the devil and be given all the nation their glory. But Jesus knew that actually there was only one way. There was only one way to true glory. And that was through the brutal humiliation and death of the cross. There are three times when we find Jesus absenting himself from his disciples and going at night to pray alone, recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. The first is in chapter 1, verse 35. Jesus has started an amazing ministry with miraculous signs and healings. And uh, <clears throat> he goes off on his own uh, in the very early hours to pray. And the next morning, the disciples wake up and the whole towns come together. They want more of this healing. They're all crowding in at the door, masses and masses of people. And when the disciples are, they can't find Jesus. Where's Jesus? And when eventually they track him down, they say, what are you doing? Now's the time for you to fulfill your ministry and heal all these people and show your gifts and abilities and strengths. And Jesus says, no, I must now move on to other towns and villages to preach, for that is what I've been called to. So at that stage, Jesus is, if you like, determining the course of his ministry. It's not going to be just a ministry of amazing miracle demonstrations, but he has a message to bring, a gospel to proclaim, and he must do that. So he, he refines that. There's this occasion here when he's on the hillside and uh, at night praying on his own. And then finally there's in the garden on the night of his betrayal when he takes his three closest friends with him, says, please pray with me. And while he agonizes in the garden about the route that he has to follow, they sleep. Could you not watch with me even one hour? But I think the application for you and I here is this very serious question of how we think we are going to achieve glory. So if I sat you down now and we had a chat and I said, tell me, what do you think will make your life most meaningful? What will mean that you achieve the things that are admired the most? What will actually be most fulfilling for you? And there could be a range of answers to that, couldn't there? It could be professionally to rise up that greasy pole and to demonstrate your skills and abilities by becoming very successful at what you do. Closely allied to that, perhaps money, to be very wealthy. I was talking yesterday to another pastor. He was telling me about how he worked with one man whose billing rate was a thousand pounds an hour. Um, I did a quick calculation. I think that means he was probably making a million pounds a month. It's pretty impressive. Is that glory? Perhaps it's academic achievement. Perhaps you'd like 
four or five degrees. Lots and lots of pre and post nominals. And people will be really impressed with you. And that will give you a sense of value and worth and glory. Jesus could have achieved all that was to be achieved in a number of ways, but he knew there was only one way that truly achieved it and fulfilled his father's purpose. And that was the way of extraordinary service on behalf of others. Jesus would lay down his life. He would empty himself of all the things that are associated with glory He would come from glory at the Father's right hand. He would lay aside his majesty. He would take on the form of us. And perhaps we like to think that we're very good looking and beautiful and all the rest. For Jesus, it was an extraordinary humiliation to put on flesh. So he became a man. And he was obedient to death. Even the repulsive, hated despised, excruciating, debasing death of a cross, murdered by the hands of wicked men. Because through that, he achieved the most extraordinary glory as the Father raises him in glory to the right hand in the heavens. Praise God. But may I challenge your idea of glory with the truth that Scripture gives us of what true glory consists of. For you and I, true glory consists in our full-hearted service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus warns us that if we try to save our lives, we will lose them. But if we lose our lives by giving ourselves to costly service, for Jesus and his people, then we will gain an eternal life. If this was a temptation for the Lord Jesus and meant that he needed to go away privately to wrestle and pray with his Father, I can say with complete confidence that it's going to be a major battle for you and me. As we go into this week ahead, what sort of glory will we seek? Will it be a man-made glory or will it be a Christ-like glory? Let me urge you to the latter. So after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. Now you'll notice perhaps that in almost all the stories that are given to us about Jesus and the disciples, that when they're with him, all goes well. When they're away from him, it's going to be a train wreck. And uh, things aren't going to go well here either. And I think that's a very simple lesson for us, isn't it? Um, That if we walk humbly with the Lord Jesus Christ, each day seeking him, seeking to fulfill his purposes for us, then he'll be with us. And generally speaking, we will know peace and joy in serving. If you just ignore him, it's very likely there'll be a train wreck. But Jesus is up on the mountain praying and he sees that the disciples whom he had put in the boat, whom he had directed and sent away, they were making headway painfully. And the word in the original there is entirely fairly represented painfully. 
but it's actually quite uh, extreme pain to the extent that it's used to describe the pain of childbirth um, and then in Revelation actually the pain of those suffering eternal torment. So at the very least this is not a trivial suffering, it's a significant suffering. Um, it seems that their lives are not in danger, the storm isn't that bad, but the wind's against them and they've been toiling for hours, perhaps six hours or more, and they're just not making any progress. It's blistering and just physically exhausting. And at about the fourth watch of the night, and they split the night up into four lots of three hours, so this is between four and six in the morning, he comes to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. They're terrified. There's a lot here, and we need to understand the Old Testament background or we'll miss what's going on. So the first thing is, why does Jesus come to them walking on the water? Why do that? A bunch of other ways he could have come to them that would be more normal. But no, Jesus does this extraordinary walking on the water. Did you notice, and my thanks to whoever chose the Psalms today, did you notice when we sang in Psalm 77 earlier, um, verse 19, uh, talking about God, your path was through the sea, your way through the mighty waters led, your footprints none could see. So in Psalm 77, we have a reference to God walking on water. Perhaps the clearest exposition of this is in Job chapter 9, and I'll just read you from verse 8. Job is talking about the Lord God, and he says this, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvellous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. So that and some other references in Isaiah ascribe in the Old Testament to God alone the ability to walk on water. So why does Jesus walk on water? What message is he sending the disciples? That's the first thing. Second thing, then, is Jesus sits them in trouble. He waits until the fourth watch of the night. So he went up fairly early in the evening in relative terms, and he waited hours. He allowed the disciples to struggle and uh, be in agony as they fought the wind, and then eventually he comes to them. But, do you see, he came to them walking on the sea, verse 48, he meant to pass by them. So actually Jesus, in a sense, wasn't coming to them at all. He saw them in trouble on the water, in distress, in agony, and he's just going to pass by. Why? And again, we need to understand the context that the Old Testament gives us so that we can appreciate what's going on. Do you remember, those of you who know your Old Testament, Moses getting incredibly frustrated with the people and saying to the Lord, um, if you're not going to come with us, please just wipe us out. There's no point unless you come with us. 
And in, in his frustration and his distress at the way everything's going, Moses pleads with God, show me your glory. That's what he wants to see. Show me your glory. And uh, he's on Mount Sinai. And the Lord says to him, it's not possible that you'll see my glory. No man can see me and live. But here's a cleft in the rock. Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. You'll just see my back. I will pass by. Remember Elijah. He's had this tremendous contest with the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Asherah never turned up. He's defeated them amazingly by the demonstrated power of God in destroying and burning up the the burnt offering and so on. And then all the prophets of Baal are put to death. And then he gets a message from Jebel. I'm going to do the same to you as you've just done to the prophets of Baal. And he flees and he's exhausted and wiped out. And the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing? And he says, frankly, I'd like to die. And the Lord says, he feeds him and so on. And he says, no, what I'll do for you, Elijah, is I'll show you my glory. I will pass by. And here we have Jesus meant to pass by. God alone walks on water. God reveals himself to his people in a theophany, effectively, by passing by. And then do you see what happens when they see him walking on the sea? The disciples think it's a ghost. The disciples were, the Israelites had a, a view of the sea that the sea sort of summarized evil and that there were evil spirits in the sea and the sea was basically something you didn't want to have much to do with. And so in this storm they see this apparition and they cry out for they were absolutely terrified. They screamed would be Perhaps a more helpful translation here. They did cry out, but it was a very agonized crying out. They saw him and they were terrified. And you see what Jesus says to them. Verse 50. Take heart. It is I. In the original, ego amy. I am. Take heart. I am. Now again, if we know our Old Testaments, we know that when Moses was was trying to turn down the directive that the Lord was giving him to go and represent to Pharaoh that the people should be released from their slavery, Moses says, well, uh, you know, I'm going to have to have some credentials here. Who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am has sent you the eternally existing one, I am. And the covenant name for God in the Old Testament that we think is probably pronounced something like Yahweh means I am. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am. Do you see what's going on? Jesus told them to get in the boat. He sent them away. He didn't want them involved in any kind of attempt at an uprising and a crowning of him king or whatever. But he's got something in mind for the disciples that's much more important than that. 
They steer into trouble at his direct command. They haven't been faithless. They haven't been disobedient. They've done exactly what he told them to do. And as a result, they're in great difficulty. And in their difficulty, in their hour of need, Jesus walks on the water. He intends to pass by and he tells them, I am. For Jesus, the most important thing for his disciples is not that they have a safe journey across the lake, not that they're impressed with his glory. The most important thing is that they recognize their dealing with the living God. People will turn up at your door, won't they? Or they now have these uh, sort of bookstores in the street. And they'll be concerned to tell you that Jesus never claims to be God. Wrong. Here's Jesus in three immediate ways telling his disciples that he is God. He walks water. He passes by. He tells them, I am. And for you and I, whatever this week brings, however your providence is experienced that the Lord has for you, here is the most important thing that he intends to achieve for you. That is that you should see that Jesus is God. This man, born, lived, suffered, died 2,000 years ago, in whose stream of witness we stand as Christians, this man is not just a great man, not just a prophet, not just somebody who's instructing us wisely in the ways of God. He is Almighty God. And we look at this passage and we're amazed, amazed. And we see something rightly of the glory of Jesus Christ, whom alone we are to worship and adore. Praise God. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, I think it would be true to say, isn't it, that we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, um, trying to use my vocabulary carefully, the Lord Jesus Christ tempted to glory in different ways, but resisting, crying to the Father in solitude for strength and ability to face all that he had to face to achieve true glory through the humiliation and death on the cross. And we are amazed at the love of our Savior, that he should set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem for the joy that was set before him. He despised the shame. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing that his delight in his church, his redeemed people, you and I, extraordinarily, was the power and enabling, the joy that determined Christ to do what he had to do. We see that and we're amazed and we glorify him. 
And then we see something of his self-revelation as he engages the disciples on the sea. And we go, wow, that's just glorious. And uh, we see something of the deity of Christ, his Godhead, as he reveals himself to the disciples. But then there's this solemn, solemn warning. And my job is to be faithful to the text, as God helps me. And so I have to bring you the solemn warning. These disciples had lived with Jesus now for perhaps about a year. They'd seen him in all that you read in the early chapters of Mark, healing and debating and teaching and instructing. They were intimate with him. They saw all of that. They'd seen the miracles he performed over um, satanic occupation, um, over physical illness, um, over nature. And now they'd just seen him feed this huge crowd with five loaves and two fishes. And yet, when it comes to the crunch, they can't see the glory of Jesus. They can't see his deity. And they're just astounded, utterly astounded, because they didn't understand. Their hearts were hardened. You're here this morning. That's good. You're with the Lord's people, seeking to praise and worship him. That's good. You're singing and praying. You're hearing the word expounded. That's good. But I'm sorry, my friend, it's not enough. You can be with Jesus and still not understand. There is much more to being a Christian than going through motions and living in a certain way. We have to come to the point where with soft hearts we see the truth about Jesus and the corresponding truth about ourselves. And the risk is that we won't and our hearts will be hard. Do I need to apply that more? I and you need to examine ourselves. What really is our relationship with Jesus? Why really are you here this morning? In what really does your Christian faith consist? Have you seen his glory? Are you prepared to serve in the pattern of Jesus? Do you recognize him truly as the living God? Is it your heart's desire to see him glorified and ourselves humbled before him? What do you want? We were on holiday once. We went out with Oak Hall and uh, we had a... A chaplain with us, he was a minister of a church, and it was a skiing holiday. And I remember on one occasion, um, uh, he didn't make the right turn on the skiing slope, and he went straight into the side of this huge snow mound. And all that was left was kind of the impression of him going like this. And that evening, he was so shocked by the whole thing, he can't have put a sentence together. But he told us this particular story, that uh, in his ministry, he had this man who'd visited the church occasionally, 
very successful and wealthy businessman. And uh, this businessman had said to him, he said, I have an aircraft. I'd love to take you for a flight in it if you'd like. And so the minister thought, well, that's great. I mean, ministers don't get many exciting uh, jollies, do they? And he thought, that's fantastic. And so he went along to the airport where this man had his, his private aircraft. And it wasn't just any aircraft. It was a fast jet trainer that he'd bought from one of the previous Soviet um, republics when the Soviet Union had fallen apart. And he'd bought this high-performance jet training aircraft to the UK, and he'd, he'd been taught to fly it himself. It was a two-seater and so on. And so he took um, the minister up in it, and he did all these high-powered aerobatics and all the rest. And uh, they landed at the end with the minister having just managed to keep everything inside. And they got out of the aircraft, and he took him back to the sort of these places that have nice lounges for the owners of these kind of jets. He took him back to the lounge, and they're having a cup of coffee about it. And uh, the wealthy businessman said to the minister, he said, well, how was that? And he said, the minister said, it was fantastic. Thank you so much for bringing it. And the wealthy businessman just burst into tears. And the minister said, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And he said, for all my working life, it has been my goal to own and fly my own high-performance jet aircraft. He said, I've achieved it, and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. I just feel helpless and hopeless and empty and purposeless. And without Jesus, it'll be exactly the same for you and I. Now it might look like the greasy pole is great and you should climb it. It might look you can find all kinds of self-fulfillment in doing all kinds of studies and whatever else. But my friend, at the end, it will be empty without Jesus. So I plead with you this morning, don't let your heart be hardened. But today, while it's day, seek him. Find him. Love him. Serve him. My great desire is that at the end of the day, as I stand before Christ in the final judgment, I should hear, well done, good and faithful. And then it's that next word that says it all, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful businessman. Well done, good and faithful academic. Well done, good and faithful self-fulfilled person. No. Well done, good and faithful servant. Brothers and sisters, above everything else, our lives must be lives of service to the Lord Jesus Christ.